Welcome to the frontier of the metaverse, where we learn from high quality entrepreneurs, artists, and change makers shaping the future of the metaverse. Here we discuss how to level up, how to get started, and how to get ahead of the opportunity. I'm your host, Howard Kingston. This episode is with Amanda Cassett. Amanda is one of the leading marketing minds in Web3. She's the co-founder of Serotonin, which is one of Web3's leading marketing agencies, as well as Mojito. Now, you may not have heard of Amanda or Serotonin yet, but chances are you've heard of the projects she has helped grow, such as Decentraland, such as Proof and Moonbirds, G-Money, and even Ethereum, and many more. So in this episode, we really geek out on marketing. It's a very, very practical episode. So in this episode, we talk about the differences between Web 2 marketing and Web 3 marketing. We talk about the biggest mistakes new Web 3 projects make when they go to market. And we talk about how to grow your first 1,000 community members, something which Amanda really stresses is so important in Web 3 marketing. And with that, let's get to the show. Amanda, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Howard. Amanda, I saw that you're a big sci-fi fan. I know one of your favorite books is Ender's Game, and I'm also a big sci-fi fan. What is it about sci-fi that excites you about where we're going in the world of Web3? Ooh, so interesting. I am a big sci-fi fan, and I have no idea how you knew Ender's Game is my favorite book, but it is. A lot of Web3 folks talk about Neil Stevenson a lot. The whole idea of the metaverse comes from Snow Crash. He pioneered that term and that concept that there'd be this convergence of massive multiplayer online games that are immersive in a world that lots of people can access. And he coined that the metaverse, I think, for the first time. So a lot of books in Web3 are Neil Stevenson fans. You also get a lot of Ready Player One, Ernest Klein references in Web3. The idea that there's a nameless, faceless corporation trying to own the metaverse and privatize it, put it behind a paywall. Nolan Sorrento, the villain of Ready Player One versus our young hero protagonist who is going to beat him at his own game because he loves it more and win the treasure hunt. A lot of that imagery and narrative really appeals to people in Web3. These sci-fi novels both predicted the existence of something before it fully existed. And so I think for a lot of people in the space, sci-fi is a glimpse into the future. And I think those two novels in particular have resonated with people maybe more than other types of sci-fi that focus on new planet exploration or flying car technologies, because the innovation in our times has happened in the world of bits rather than the world of atoms. And those particular novels have narratives that are focused around innovations in the world of bits, which seems super true right now. I agree. I remember when I was reading Ready Player One, I remember there's a part where he's in the classroom, you know, he's got his VR headset on and it transports him into the classroom. That's how he 
takes his schooling. And I could just really see the way it was written. I could just really see yeah, that's inevitable. Yeah, that's definitely the way it's going to be. And it allows us to paint a picture of maybe rather than a thousand years from now in Star Trek, maybe it's 50 years from now and you can see that how things may land. I completely agree. Are you reading any sci-fi at the moment? Yeah, actually, there's a really great trilogy that a bunch of people... The three-body problem? Yeah, so everyone in Web3 Crypto read the three-body problems here, all three volumes. So I was part of that. I read that. I popularized it a lot. Have you read all three? I read all three. I won't spoil anything. Another one I love is um, Greg Egan, Diaspora. Anything Greg Egan is incredible. And then finally, Rama's Nam, the Nexus trilogy. So Rama's Nam is actually, or was at Microsoft, is very engineering savvy. There's this invention that lets people connect their minds to each other, like a drug mixed with a technology that almost puts minds on a blockchain together so they can share data. You know, the Chinese government tries to get it. A bunch of Buddhist monks are using it in cool ways. It just turns into a whole kit and caboodle. Some great recommendations there. I love that last one. You can really see there's some Elon Musk inventions that you could imagine coming from that. And anyone who's listening who has not listened to or read The Three-Body Problem, strong recommendation from myself as well. It's insanely good. So, Amanda, I'd love to go back a little bit. You're deep in the world of Web3, and I really look forward to exploring that with you. Could you let us know how you first got into this world? It's so funny that we've circled back to talking about the creator economy, because that's actually how I got started in the space. I thought I wanted to be a journalist, and my first job out of college was working with Ariana Huffington at the Huffington Post, albeit not as a journalist, but on the business side. And I learned a lot about the business model around content online and how hard it was going to be for creators to get remunerated for their work because of the double spend problem and because of some of the incentives around distribution, social media, advertising. I left and started a company called Slant, where we split the revenue from advertising served across content between creators who took home 70% and our company that took home 30%. The problem was with Slant, we were growing fast, but in our payments model, we were splitting the dollar, splitting the cent, so that even though our business model worked logically, it didn't work as well practically because of how payments online worked. And it was then that I got obsessed with payments. And as a media tech founder in New York, started to try to learn everything I could about payments. So this was a really unconventional way into crypto because I wasn't one of the people that discovered Bitcoin in 2009 or even in 2012 after the Silk Road, which was a time when a lot of people discovered it. I discovered Ethereum first, actually, even though I'd heard of Bitcoin, but I got engaged with Ethereum first, happened to go to one of the first Ethereum meetups as part of my payments quest, met Joe Lubin, one of the co-founders of Ethereum and founder of Consensus, Andrew Keyes, Christian Lundquist, Sam Cassett, and just got obsessed with Ethereum because it solved the problem that my little startup had but solved so many more problems and made so many business models work that logically made sense, 
but didn't with the way payments had previously worked online. And I realized I needed to join the circus. And so as Consensus was getting its sea legs under it, I joined as its first chief marketing officer, where I worked from 2016 through 2019 under a mandate of getting Ethereum to market and telling the Ethereum story for the first time to the world, which involved telling the story of blockchain, the idea that there isn't just Bitcoin, there's an underlying technology called blockchain that can be used for other use cases, that you know, Bitcoin is an incredible system, the first system to succeed at securely in a decentralized way, sending money around a network, but that with Ethereum, we can now make that value programmable and create any kind of application we want with value online. That was the story I was charged with telling, equipped with the first ever Web3 marketing team. For anyone listening who has heard of Consensus, but is like, I keep hearing that name, but not really sure what it is. What is Consensus, would you mind me asking? Consensus is the booster rocket that brought the Ethereum ecosystem to where it is today. It's a company started by Joe Lubin, who was one of the Ethereum co-founders, who amicably split off from the Ethereum Foundation after the Ethereum pre-sale and launch to basically build a for-profit technology company to develop all of the different tools and then build out the applications of Ethereum. So he was investing, Joe Lubin was investing his own money in a lot of these applications, many of which have been wildly successful, like MetaMask, like Infura, Truffle, that are some of the backbones of this ecosystem that have allowed it to flourish. And then on top of that, many of the use cases built out on top of those tools have flourished as well. Things like Gitcoin, which allows open source creators to easily contribute to projects and get remunerated for their work. Things like Gnosis, which has produced all kinds of incredible technology. We use um, the Gnosis multi-sig wallet, for example, which is best in class. Consensus also produced a number of startups and projects that didn't work, but that inspired others. So for example, like Ujo, the decentralized music streaming platform didn't work out of Consensus, but it ended up inspiring Audius, which now is a successful decentralized music platform. And so every time we explored one of these use cases at Consensus, we did our best to bring that startup to market and get it traction and turn it into a company. But even if one of these projects didn't work at the time, maybe it was too early, it would serve as a meaningful showcase of what Ethereum could do that would inspire others. What was one of the biggest lessons Coming into this, you would have probably referred to you as a Web2 business person and marketer. And then you started marketing things in the Web3 space, even though it probably wasn't referred to as Web3 back then. What was one of the biggest differences that you really saw between marketing something in the Web3 space versus in the Web2 space? When I started working on Ethereum and working at Consensus, we weren't talking about this Web 2, Web 3 thing very much yet. That term was around. It just wasn't the dominant term. And I can talk about why I think that became the dominant term and why I think that's useful. But at the time, it was crypto. So the difference between marketing something like Ethereum and marketing a product at a centralized tech company is, you know, I didn't control the messaging around Ethereum. Vitalik's going to say whatever he says. The other core developers are going to say whatever they say. 
And that's amazing. There's no centralized marketing or comms function for a decentralized movement like Ethereum. And so as a marketer, you need to think bottoms up rather than top down. If you try to control everyone and try to standardize, okay, this is how we're describing this. This is the terminology we're using. This is the imagery we're using. You're just going to get frustrated because you have no leverage to make it work that way. And it doesn't even work the best possible way that way. What you want to do is grassroots bottoms up marketing. So one thing we did just to get tactical At this time, there were starting to be Ethereum meetup organizers popping up in cities around the world. And we organized those organizers into a network to share resources and best practices. We built for them, for example, a standardized deck template that they could use to make their presentations more professional. We made sure they all had money for pizza and beer. We made sure there was a rotating cast of new projects coming and doing tours around all the Ethereum meetup groups so that people could get exposed to new projects and new content. So what we did was empower and connect a group of people that were each leverage points for lots of new people learning about Ethereum so that there was some kind of standardization And we were allowing these organizers to connect their identity API to the Ethereum movement, not by over-determining how they did it or how they talked about it or how they organized their group, but rather by giving them the resources they said they needed in a bottoms-up kind of way. I could imagine a moment in time where you realize, you know, I actually can't control the way that people are going to explain this thing. So I just need to lean into that because the natural Web2 marketer would be wanting to control the brand and the tone and all these things. Right. So that must be an interesting. I'll give you a funny example of early on. I was still trying to do that. So I knew instinctively, as did a number of folks on the legal team at Consensus, that ICO rhymes with IPO. And eventually, you know who is going to get annoyed about that. So we really tried to get everyone to call it a TGE, a token generation event, so that it wouldn't rhyme with IPO and maybe wouldn't offend the powers that be or maybe not as quickly. And it just didn't catch on, right? There's so much mimesis in the space. You have to see which terms are catching on, which terms are useful, what's allowing people to express something, what's mimetic. You can't always enforce your will. The cool thing about marketing in Web3 is that the power actually comes from the fact that you're not controlling everything yourself in a centralized, top-down command and control way, but letting other people plug their own incentives and their own identity into doing that marketing work for you. Because what I always say with Web3 is that Web3 is just a substrate. It's clay. It's a set of tools for building incentive alignment engines. And so when you're supplying a group of people with incentives and resources, they're going to act according to those incentives, whether that's helping to market or get the message out or refer new people into a community, whether that's contributing to a code base, whatever that is, that's going to be a more efficient mechanism for a marketer to grow their project than doing everything themselves, even though it involves letting go of some control, it's more efficient and it's more sustainable over time because, you know, eventually the centralized marketing department can just hand off to the community and the community can take it from there. I contrast that with something like web two marketing, where you're always using Google ads. You're always using Facebook business suite, Instagram ads, Twitter ads, And your growth 
is really an arbitrage between customer acquisition costs on those platforms and lifetime customer value. So all of your revenue is really just a margin exercise of what the margins are between those two things, which means it's so unsustainable because you're stuck constantly paying out to those third-party platforms, even just to reach the audience that you already own. And it doesn't have that infinite open system kind of potential. It's this very kind of closed system marginal potential. And that contrast is what makes me think that Web3 projects and the more decentralized and Web3 style, the better are going to win over time. Absolutely. And I look forward to diving more into marketing because I know from Consensus, you went on to launch Serotonin, which I just saw popping up time and time again, whether it be from great projects like Proof or G-Money. And Serotonin now is one of the businesses that seems to be powering a lot of the growth of the great projects out there. What motivated you to leave Consensus and start your own thing and start serotonin. I worked at Consensus for four years and my my mandate, which was partially self-given, partially maybe implicit from Joe and others in leadership there, was to get Ethereum across the line. In those early days, it wasn't clear at all that it would have staying power. In hindsight, everything feels inevitable, but in that moment, things can feel very new and very delicate. And I wanted to stay at Consensus in my role until I felt like we told the story of Ethereum to the point where it probably wasn't going to go away. And after four years, I did feel like my teammates and I, building the first Web3 marketing team, I felt that we'd done it. Consensus also at that time, necessarily, right? Consensus was a booster rocket for Ethereum. Once Ethereum launched and was taking off, Consensus necessarily needed to narrow its focus to be a software product company and grow the products in its ecosystem that were working and really focus on growing things like MetaMask and Fira Truffle. But I wanted to paint with a broader brush than that. I wanted to help grow the Web3 ecosystem in a more macro way. And the only way to do that, I thought, was to myself and my teammates apply the learnings from being the first Web3 marketing team, bringing many of the first Web3 projects, some of the first tokens, some of the first DAOs, DeFi to market, to this next generation of projects that we're building in Web3. So um, many of my teammates from my marketing team at Consensus joined me, as well as a number of other marketers I'd met during that time around the space. And we started Serotonin in order to really get that next generation of projects going. And now we're the first and largest Web3 native marketing firm. We work with you know L1s like Polygon, that I think has really picked up the mantle of Bitcoin to Ethereum to, you know, now Polygon, making Ethereum infinitely scalable and actually bringing it to the masses. We work with a lot of great metaverse projects like Decentraland, Blue Chip NFT projects like World of Women, Kevin Rose's Proof. We have a lot of fun. You're at an interesting point. You've really seen Web2 and Web3 marketing. What have you seen now if you're spending so much time in it? If a Projects is wanting to launch now. The old playbook of Web2 marketing, and you kind of referred to some of this earlier, but the old playbook of pushing a message out to people isn't really work, it, you know, just will not work for a Web3 project. What are the key differences between Web3 and Web2 marketing, if you had to summarize? 
people now see, you know, FTX doing a Super Bowl commercial. They'll see, you know, Coinbase taking out Facebook ads. I want to be super clear about something. Those aren't Web3 companies. Those are Web2 companies. They're really old business models. Centralized exchanges have existed for a really long time. The novel thing about Coinbase, FTX, Binance is that they are selling a Web3-based asset, but they're doing so in a Web2 context, the custodial centralized exchange. And so it's totally normal and expected that those kinds of companies would pursue and succeed with very Web2-style marketing tactics. You don't see them with their own native tokens. You don't see them building Web3 community on like a Discord channel. When Coinbase launched their NFT marketplace, it flopped because, you know, fundamentally people don't like buying their art from a bank. You know, there are certain kinds of things that work for companies with that type of business model. And there are certain kinds of things that don't. Just to make sure people aren't confused, those are Web2 companies that happen to be working with a Web3 asset. And so it makes total sense why they're advertising and marketing like a Web2 company. For a decentralized project or a project that aims to decentralize, such as a DeFi protocol, such as a DAO, such as NFT collection, that's a really fundamentally different project that's really about attracting the right early community members. And a lot of that work at the beginning of a project is really manual. You do things that don't scale, as we all know, from zero to one at the beginning of a startup. And it is pretty centralized at the beginning because it's usually going to be the core team that's doing a lot of the key activities. I think of early community formation like descending from a spaceship, an alien spaceship, putting your ladder down somewhere on Earth, admitting, you know, 50, 100, 1,000 humans, and then flying back off into space. And those are the humans you're stuck with. And you're going to use them to populate your new planet, right? And so you better pick wisely who you bring onto your spaceship. You don't have infinite capacity. Those people are going to play an outsized role in determining the other people that come after them as it grows. So a lot of care needs to be put into those early stages of attracting the right people for the right reasons. It can be a mixture of intrinsic and extrinsic incentives into the community, making sure that you're using the Web3 substrate to create incentive alignment mechanisms, whether those are fungible tokens, whether those are non-fungible tokens, NFTs, whether those are referral, claimable, membership, access program, whatever it is that you're using the Web3 substrate to drive incentive alignment and that you're very carefully tweaking and modulating how it grows and starts acting on those incentives and that you watch that community as it's forming, you watch what it's doing and you say, oh, over there, I notice that these community members are starting For example, ladybirds, right? You bring up the moonbirds. Oh, there are these women members of a community that have organized and that are starting their own meetups. Okay, how do we support that? And how do we put resources around that? How do we acknowledge that? So it's not about having all the ideas yourself as the centralized marketing team or as the founders of a project. Once you've created those incentive alignment mechanisms and brought in the right early community, it's about observing what they do in the wild and seeing how you can support that and how you can help that flourish rather than always being the one with the idea and controlling the system top down. I've never heard it described that way. It's organic. When you're working with clients or you're watching these things unfold, is there a 
process that you, let's say you're working with a new client and they're new to this and you've seen it happen a few times, is there a way that you would coach or process you'd recommend for a project to be able to do that successfully? Could you talk to that a little bit? Because just my brain almost, it feels difficult. So much stuff going on, not knowing which things to pour some water on from a farming perspective in a positive way, and then which things maybe not to focus on. The hardest activity is the zero to one activity of getting that sort of nucleus into your community, that sort of minimum viable community together. Is there like a number of that? Would you say it's a hundred or a thousand or would it depend? It depends on the project. A lot of projects feel pressure from investors to have large discord communities. I've seen projects hire hype firms that are just focused on giveaways or buying bots or followers. And then when it comes to actually building community or converting the community to do some kind of action, it's impossible because they aren't in it for the right reasons and they aren't the actual addressable market for the product. So I would really caution staying away from that and actually doing the hard work of genuinely organically building your community. So the hardest part is that zero to one, getting them in the door. And so it's about knowing your product. What is it that we offer? Articulate really precisely what the problem is that we're solving or what kind of benefit we're offering to people. Figure out who your audience is. So very specifically, and you can be really niche with this, who's going to be the most interested in this? Then you figure out what channels do those audience members live on? Are they on crypto Twitter? Are they watching Bloomberg? Are they reading the Wall Street Journal? Are they listening to NFT now? So you figure out where your audience members are, and then you make sure they discover you where you are. So discovery is the top of a marketing funnel. And I have a very simplified version of a marketing funnel for thinking about this, which is discovery at the very top, which is the moment when a potential new user or community member first sees your brand and your key message. The second step is engagement when they decide to do something with it that ideally puts them on some kind of list or puts them in a group or puts them in a social following that allows them to be reached again by the project. Then the third step in that funnel, super simplified version of this funnel, is conversion into actual usage of a product or purchase of a product. And then the final stage is retention. You keep them using, you keep them engaged. And ideally, if that's going well and they're happy, they'll refer more people into the top. And that's yet another discovery mechanism. So after you know your product, you know your audience, you know the channels where they live, your exercise is getting your project discovered on those channels where they live. And so you need to create a message about what your project is. That is, I call it a knife's edge message. It doesn't need to be the most general message covering everything that you do, but it's an articulation of the most salient part of the product or project that connects the most tightly with the needs or the desires of the potential new user. And you can refine that and test that over time by seeing how different messages perform on the discovery channels where new potential users or community members are discovering your product. And so once they discover, hopefully they engage, maybe they come to your website, maybe they come to your social channels, they might connect their wallet, they might follow you on Twitter, 
They might follow you on Instagram, Facebook, whatever it is, but crypto Twitter is still the biggest for this. They might join your Discord community. I think there's some other really exciting Web3 chat tools coming along, but Discord right now is the winner. They might you know, sign up for your email list to receive an email when your product is ready. What's in common about all of those is at the engagement phase, you're holding people in this holding tank of potential activatable energy that allows you to retarget them whenever you want in order to convert them into that next stage of the funnel, which is conversion to using a product or purchasing something. You have to keep people alive in there. That's where a lot of this community management happens. That's where people join these communities primarily for entertainment and connection, right? That's what they want there. It's got to be fun. It's got to be fun in there. People want to be entertained or they want to be informed or they want to make valuable connections, create business connections, build their own projects. And then once they're in there, that's how you're forming your community. And you can retarget that community whenever you want that's held in that kind of engagement tank and convert them into using your products. And once they're using your product, you can convert them into referring others. And the cool thing about this community Part of the funnel in Web3 is that you're not holding those people at arm's length from your product. What Web3 really does is it collapses the category of investor, builder, and user into a single economically aligned category. There used to be these bright lines in Web2. Okay, you're an investor in a company. You want to extract as much value from it as possible. Okay, you're a builder or a founder or a team member of a company, you want to sell users the cheapest possible product to make at the highest possible cost. Okay, you're a user. You want to extract the most uh, value from the company at the lowest price. So they have misaligned incentives fundamentally. In Web3, community members can be all three. So they can be an investor in that they've bought some kind of asset correlated with the project that will perhaps increase in value if a certain set of criteria are met that they can help foster. They could be a team member, even if they came in as a user by contributing to the open source code. And the team members themselves may be open source contributors that contribute to all kinds of different projects. So we're starting to see the bright lines go away and to create this single incentive aligned group that there's really no better word for than community that can very efficiently over time take the handoff of many of the functions that used to be handled by the centralized business departments. I remember when I got into Web3 and I was in some Discord groups, the thought I was just going, what is going on? You know, there's all this, you know, crypto Twitter going on, there's Discord and just rewired. Like, I think everyone has that moment where it starts rewiring their brain a bit. And there is a process to it. And I think you did really elegantly deconstructed that. And there always is a process and learning from someone like yourself allows us to, you know, kind of repeat that. Thanks for describing it so well. I haven't heard it described like that before. Something I would love to zoom in on a little bit is something you said called the knife edged message, particularly when you've got an innovative product. And a lot of the time there's very clever people building these innovative products with new technologies. You know, it's hard to describe in a succinct way what the key benefit and value to that product is in a really succinct way. You know, we're not just opening up, say, a new barbershop around the corner that everyone knows what a barbershop is. Yeah, I've opened up a barbershop. No, we're inventing this new technology that's never been around before, probably. If someone is 
launching a Web3 product and they know maybe their messaging isn't quite right because when they describe it, the glaze look comes up on people's eyes. How would you guide them or suggest to them to start refining and sharpening the knife edge of that knife edge message a little bit? I'll give you an example from my practice, actually. We worked with Alio on its messaging toward the beginning of that company's life cycle, and we encouraged them to foreground the fact that they're focused on ZK and to really have ZK prominent in their messaging. And at the time, very few people were talking about ZK. It was very early. And now, of course, everyone in Web3 that's technical is talking about it. We were thinking, okay, who's the audience for this product? It's technical people. It's developers. It's people that have heard of this. And so even though the messaging might not be accessible to a random person in the general public, it was super interesting and cutting edge and ahead of its time messaging-wise facing the developer community that it was the most interested in. And so I wouldn't have projects, especially technical projects, assume that they need to be comprehensible to someone's grandma, unless of course she's a computer scientist, I will make sure that your messaging resonates with your target audience and that you understand your target audience. The other thing that I get from clients is, well, our product does X, Y, and Z and the messaging you're suggesting only is about X. People are proud of their products. They're proud of all of their different use cases and all their different features. And so there's a temptation by projects to cram too much in, but you got to choose one thing because people have space in their minds for one thing, right? Like what's the safest car? It's a Volvo. What's the second safest car? I don't know. And Volvo might have um, a great sound system. A Volvo might have great horsepower, but being known as the safest car is that knife's edge that wedges open the perception of the audience member to then go and learn more. So even if your product has lots of different features, lots of different capabilities, you have to choose the one that's the most resonant with your target audience. And that wedges open the door for them to learn about all the other features. And if you can't choose, you're not going to have it be enough of a wedge and enough of a knife's edge in order to get that door open for them to learn more. And the last thing is, I wouldn't necessarily consider it a disadvantage that you're innovating something new as opposed to building yet another barbershop. Because when we work with companies to create brands, we always think about being memorable, being differentiated, and creating a new category. And when you're a barbershop, you're just one of something in a category that already exists. You're not the first, you're not the biggest, you're not the best, probably. So whenever we have an innovative product, we think about, okay, how do we create new terminology that defines a new category that this product can actually be the leader in? Because it's the first, it's defining the category. And if we think this is an important innovation, it means many others will follow and probably also call themselves the same thing. But our first mover will be top of mind because it's the first of whatever this thing is that we've coined. And so I would just see that as an opportunity. And you can tell whether your new phrasing, your new category is working through mimesis. If you say something and people repeat it, then it's working. It's like Darwinian evolutionary selection for language. Mimesis is selective in the same way that like genetics are selective and things work if you can see them operating mimetically, right? 
we've been really proud of terms that we've coined over the years, things like Biddle with Gitcoin instead of HODL, this idea. It used to be that you would hold on to your value in crypto despite all the cycles. Well, there's also some building to do, especially in a down market. And so Biddle gets to something really important there or something the Web 2.5 that we coined recently to describe all of the companies that exist between Web 2 and Web 3, which is most of them, right, that aren't completely decentralized. We were the first to coin that term and put out a report on the Web 2.5. It's fun adding these kinds of new categories because other people use them and they turn into value for people and they help people you know, better understand their world and better define what they themselves are doing. Yes, I have definitely heard Web 2.5 used quite a few times, so that's awesome. When you see first-time Web 3 founders launching a project of some description, whether it be DeFi or DAO or NFT, what are some of the most common mistakes you see them making from a marketing perspective, perhaps maybe getting the word out about their projects? I will tell you like the one single biggest mistake is to build your earliest community inorganically. I'll see people make this mistake all the time. Occasionally we'll have a founder come into our practice and say, okay, we really need to impress our investors by getting 10,000 discord members within two months so that we can do this drop on time that we're planning. And sometimes they'll have some firm they're using for this because we don't touch that kind of inorganic stuff. Well, if, you know, firm X is just using rewards and kind of cheap tactics and buying bots, buying followers to get them into the group, you may get the 10,000 followers, but they're not actually going to convert to doing the action that you care about in the moment of truth, because they're not community members with a good product market fit match to what you're going to be offering. And so that firm may get paid for, you know, achieving that goal of 10,000 followers, but they're not the right 10,000 followers. And we've seen this happen over and over again. I think it's the investors sometimes that are putting the pressure on these projects to get these vanity metrics. I would really encourage investors to monitor not just size and speed of growth of Discord communities, Twitter followings, et cetera, but to look at engagement and content of engagement. So what kinds of conversations are happening in the channels? What kinds of people are in this you know, early audience? I think nothing matters so much than the first thousand, first 10,000 community members. And after that, each individual person is going to matter less on average to the overall success or failure or character of the community. But those very first are really important. Almost like what happens to you in your childhood years are proportionally like more shaping to what happens to you as a grown up. And then the more years you stack on, okay, each moment is a little bit less shaping. It's kind of like that. Or how the early employees in a startup, right? Like your first five employees are going to shape the culture in your startup way more than the millionth employee to your multinational corporation is going to shape anything. It's interesting that 1000 number. It's like that famous article. Is it Kevin Kelly? Is it Kevin Kelly, the 1,000 tree fans? Yeah. We're in a base 10 system. We have 10 fingers, 10 toes. So 1,000 feels like a good number. 10,000 feels like a good number. On the flip side of new first-time founders making the mistakes, if you were writing a playbook for a first-time Web3 founder to get good engagement, not vanity metrics, good engaged 1,000 
first fans or first community members. Have you found from all your different clients, there's certain channels that seem to work well for engaging those more than others? It totally depends on who your target audience is. And you should know what your product is, know your target audience, and know what channels your target audience lives on. It's different depending on what you want, right? But one thing I would just suggest everyone is that people that already do or like a certain type of thing will do or like that thing, again, in a different context or in a different community. And so don't expect people that don't do a thing to suddenly start doing a thing. Go looking for people that you want to do your thing that already do something kind of like that. Could you give an example? People that have bought an NFT before are more likely to buy an NFT than people that have never bought an NFT before, for example. So if your target audience is all people, is is a whole user group of people that have never bought an NFT before, that could not work. You have a new DeFi protocol. You're going to want audiences that have used a DeFi protocol before, and that's going to be your, your first kind of core audience. Eventually, you'll get big enough that you become the first port of call for new users that are coming into Web3 through your use case. But typically, largely, they're going to be people that already do that kind of thing. The exception to that is brands, big brands. So famously Topshot, a lot of the people that collected its the NBA Topshot NFTs were NBA fans. They weren't previous holders. So really what you're doing there isn't selling NFTs to an audience of NFT buyers. You're selling a new NBA thing to an audience of NBA things. So you think about it all day, right? So for some brands, that's the right way to think. So the Nike sneakers, some people bought that that were Web3 folks. A lot of people bought that with their very first ever Web3 wallet. Well, they weren't targeting or they shouldn't have been targeting necessarily just Web3 NFT buyers. They're targeting people that buy Nike stuff. We did Sotheby's um, Web3 transformation and their Sotheby's Metaverse platform is powered by Mojito, which was our first product spin out from Serotonin. When we were first talking to them, they're an auction house that was created in 1741, world's first auction house. They're like, how are we going to get our existing audience of buyers to start buying NFTs? It's going to be so hard to convert them. Many of them are older. Many of them are very traditional. And we were kind of like... Ah, don't worry about it. And so most of the buyers that came into Sotheby's to buy NFTs on the Sotheby's Metaverse platform were Web3 people. They're people that buy NFTs and have a history of buying NFTs. And the fun part was a lot of new people discovered the Sotheby's brand and their more traditional offering through Sotheby's Metaverse and buying NFTs. So instead of that line being Sotheby's classic customers coming over and starting to buy NFTs, what happened more was NFT buyers came in and started buying Sotheby's normal art and Sotheby's physical you know, goods and objects, which you saw with like the Constitution Dow sale. You've seen a number of you know purchases of Sotheby's artwork in cryptocurrency, bids in cryptocurrency. So it's been kind of the opposite. So that's what I would say. I would say target people that already do a behavior kind of like the one you want them to do. Know your audience, know your product, know your channels. Yeah, definitely a penny drop moment with me. And I suppose it's hard work trying to convince someone what Web3 is as well as trying to sell them on your product. So there's probably an easy way and a harder way. So I love that. Such great advice. You mentioned part of Serotonin is you have a venture studio. And I'm really excited to explore that because, you know, I can only imagine how much fun you have with between not only working with these amazing projects that you do, but also spinning out 
new things as well. So you mentioned Mojito, which seems a really interesting product. Could you explain Mojito just for anyone who hasn't come across it yet? So Mojito, it's mojito.xyz, is the leading NFT e-commerce backend. So what that means is if you're an IP holder, if you're a creator, if you're a brand, you can start selling NFTs on your own website instead of selling them via a third-party marketplace or some kind of external partner. We actually got the idea for building Mojito when we first started working with Sotheby's and started working with CAA, Creative Artist Agency, the largest talent agency, and learning about what a giant auction house and what celebrities and talent wanted in terms of starting to interact with Web3. And what they wanted was to control the experience of selling digital goods, e-commerce style on their own sites, the same way they had done with their other products. At the time, there were only the marketplaces as the way to get your NFT into people's hands. But if you have enough of a following yourself, there's no need to give up those economics to that third-party marketplace. You should just be doing it on your own site. And I think in the future, every e-commerce store will be selling digital goods. It'll be just completely ubiquitous. And there'll be the Ebays and the Amazons of this world, like the OpenSeas and the Super Rares. But there'll also be like the Shopify's and the Salesforce of this world, which I think will be Mojito being that backend serving those kinds of companies and individuals. And so Mojito powers the Sotheby's metaverse. It's worked with big brands like Lyrical Lemonade, and which is an awesome like Gen Z music brand with the Milwaukee Bucks, Liverpool Football Club, just incredible launches on that platform. And I think it's the furthest along by far in that category. At Serotonin, we learn from our clients and we're the largest Web3 marketing firm with a really substantial Web3 transformation practice for traditional Web2 businesses. We learn from our clients what's missing that they would use if only it existed. And if enough of our clients say, we wish this existed and we'd pay for it, we prototype it, we build it internally, we get some users for it, we get some revenue flowing through it. And then we've basically functioned like a pre-seed round and like an incubator And then we spin it out and raise traditional venture into it and spin it out as its own separate company with a seed raise. So the first of those was Mojito that spun out of Serotonin in 2021. The second we're actually about to announce, I don't know when this podcast is going to come out, whether we'll have announced it yet, but it's called Franklin and you can see it. It's it's at Hello Franklin, uh, the URL, and it's a Web3 crypto native payroll. So a lot of our partners at Serotonin The first thing we do after we sign a new engagement is we get in touch with their finance person to figure out payment. And one of the things we've learned from those finance departments, they always ask us, do you guys do anything for paying people on your team in crypto or partly in crypto? Because a lot of Web3 projects, whether they're NFT projects, whether they're DeFi protocols, they have a bunch of their treasuries in crypto, their values in crypto. And a lot of their teams want to get paid in crypto because they're going to be buying crypto anyway with at least part of their salary. So why pay the fees on both sides? And the cool thing about Franklin, which is built on Polygon, so no fees in order to have these transactions. The cool thing about it is that you can do fiat payments, you can do crypto payments out of your company's treasury, and you could get paid every day proportionally. Like there's no reason why your payday needs to happen once a month, twice a month. That's just a function of the old system working slowly. So we're reinventing like a JustWorks or Augusto, but on Web3 native rails. 
that also facilitates the same you know, tax withholding stuff with fiat payments, but that adds this capability to have crypto payments, whatever proportion of your salary you want to draw on crypto, and then enables you to draw a portion of your salary with streaming payments whenever you want to. If you think about it, that puts an end to the whole like payday loan system, right? Like you can access a fractionalized portion of your salary whenever you want, which is a totally novel financial product. Can't wait to see more about it. That is really exciting. Hello, Franklin. Love it. It's called Franklin. The website is hellofranklin.xyz. Yeah, I'll put that in the show notes. Follow them on Twitter as well. And they just completed their raise and they're about to announce it. Curious from your venture studio, I love the idea that you're you know, working with all these clients and you see the problems pop up again and then you build it out. Is there any problems that you saw come up that maybe weren't quite right for your venture studio to build out, but you see as a need in the market that you've noticed? This happens all the time, actually. There are things that we think about building, but usually the problem is that they're not defensible enough. Like someone else could build them and start monetizing them and then it's just a race to the bottom. There are a lot of Discord bots that we think should exist for various parts of community management that should exist, but don't. And we could build them and we could monetize them, but it, someone else could also build them. And so it would be maybe wasted money or time to build them ourselves. We've been knocking around this funny idea of a kind of drop shipped clothing business where people can verify that they own a certain NFT and get it printed on clothing and then order that clothing. But again, perhaps not that defensible. You could have a lot of things. So in a new product, we look for TAM, so total market sizing. So there needs to be enough of a TAM. We look for you know distribution advantage. Like what advantages do we have as serotonin that unfair advantages that mean that we're going to win because of who we are? And with something like Franklin, okay, we work with all these finance departments. We can suggest this tool to all of them really easily. Or, okay, we have all these new NFT projects coming in. We can suggest very easily that they use Mojito. So we have a home court advantage for those things. So we look at market size, make sure there's enough demand, that we have some kind of special advantage at Serotonin. We look at leadership. So one of the most important questions for whether a startup succeeds or fails, is there a CEO type person that could lead this? that's going to be credible to raise venture, that has a track record of success, that can manage a team, that can attract hires. Is there that person in place? We would totally throw out an idea if we had no person to run it because we've learned that that person's got to be in place and CEO types are few and far between. They're a really scarce resource. And then finally, defensibility. So would someone else be able to very quickly come in and build something similar to what we've built? I follow you on Twitter and I noticed you mentioning something about a manuscript recently. I'd love to hear more about, I know you've been busy writing a book. Could you tell us any more about it and when it's coming out? Absolutely. You mentioned in one of your questions earlier, you mentioned if you were writing a handbook for a founder doing starting a Web3 project for the first time. It's like, well, yes, I have written that handbook. I think it might be the first Web3 business book from a major publisher. It's being published by Wiley in the spring. It's coming out on April 4th of 2023. And it's called Web3 Marketing, a handbook for the next internet revolution. The first part of the book deals with the Web3 substrate. So explains what Web3 is, how it got there, and what the tools are at your disposal in Web3 and what they do, how to use them. It's not a set of instructions. It's not a set of predetermined outcomes. 
It's a description of what these things are so that you can come up with your own way to use them for your own ends. And then the second half of the book is tactical. It's about how to go from zero to one, bootstrapping your early community, how to build your early marketing funnel, and then finally how to hand off those kinds of functions as you decentralize to your community. Finally, there's a long chapter on the web 2.5 and how brands can get into the space and our guidance about what their sort of North star POV should be as they're entering. Because we believe that the web three world, every brand is going to become a web three brand. Every brand is going to be in web three. It's going to be a heterogeneous mix of web three native companies and projects with traditional web two companies that manage to evolve. It always is. And so it's about how do those play together? How does that world come about? And how do we preserve the good things about Web3 and turn the internet into a more fun, more creative place that's more remunerative for creators and that offers the people that create the value a better shake? I'm really excited about that. It's coming out in April, April of 2023. And um, pre-orders, I think, will be open before the holidays. So good pre-order for your marketer or web three founder, pal, child, parent, aunt, dog, buy some books. Absolutely. Just have one or two questions. I'd love to ask on yourself personally. So we've been covering some of the amazing businesses you've been building and helping grow in this fast moving world of web three. It's always on everything's changing. You go away for a weekend and it feels like you've been away for six months because you miss so much. It's exciting. But the flip side to that is it can be difficult to maintain you know, your mental health, right? I've found that. I've really found myself I'm usually very good with my morning routines. And then, you know, the Twitter starts creeping in first thing in the morning and last thing at night. Do you have any routines or practices that you found has helped maintain good mental health in the world of Web3? Totally. And I've been working in this space for about seven years, and I've witnessed so many burnouts, especially among some of the most talented people. And the reason I think I've staved that off and been able to pretty much work all the way through is sleep. I get about nine hours of sleep a night on average. At conferences and during big events, that isn't always the case. But when I'm able to, you know, not be at one of those big kind of blockchain crypto conferences, it's all about sleep. I definitely recommend people read the Matthew Walker book, Why We Sleep. If you want to outsmart people that are way smarter than you in your meetings all day, get sleep. If they show up with four hours of sleep, you're going to outshine them. That's super useful. Do you have anything that you find helps your sleep quality? Yeah. Not eating too much right before bed. I think it is helpful. You want to space out your dinner and going to sleep, having a very black room that's very cold that you sleep in. I take some melatonin and CBD before bed, which is nice. That's interesting. You find that's useful? Mm -hmm, I think so. I think that stuff's useful. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. Now, if we were having a glass of wine and just chatting about stuff, is there anything in the space of Web3, whether it be NFTs or crypto in general, that you feel not enough people are really paying attention to? I would say that the way in which Web3 artifacts are becoming decoupled from crypto market prices is going to be increasingly remarkable. So 
when I buy, you know, a blue chip NFT, whether that's a board ape, whether that's a crypto punk, I think a lot of people think of that kind of like an investment and maybe it's a blend of investment with utility, kind of like why you'd buy a piece of art. So maybe you're going to put the art up on your wall for a given period of time. The analogy would be, maybe I'm going to join the community. I'm going to go to some events. Maybe I'm going to get some utility out of it, playing with this avatar in a metaverse world, but then I'm going to sell it. And I expect that perhaps I'll be able to make a profit from selling it. And so even though a lot of people have blended motives that are you know, part investor, part user, a big driving reason for buying one of those artifacts is in order to resell it. Whereas if I'm buying a pair of sneakers from the store, or if I'm buying my cup of coffee in the morning, I'm not checking the money markets before I do that. Maybe I'm checking my bank account balance to make sure I can afford it, but I'm not checking to see you know, how the euro is performing against the one against the dollar today. Similarly, like you just saw Starbucks roll out its Web3 kind of reward and membership type program. Super interesting. You've seen um, a lot of brands and games start to roll out their NFT or their Web3 rewards programs. I think we're going to see more selling to buyers objects that don't require looking at crypto prices in order to want to buy them. And that the motive to buy comes from somewhere else, such as wanting to get discount cups of coffee for life, wanting to get early access to the reservation system at your favorite fancy restaurant, wanting to get membership to a members club offered by your you know, favorite hotel group. Those are the kinds of things that you buy because of what they offer, not at all because of crypto prices. But then on top of that, you may be willing to buy them at a higher price than you would otherwise have paid, or you may be more excited to buy them than you otherwise would have been for the the physical object because you could potentially resell it. But that's secondary. You don't think of yourself as consuming the value. You think of yourself as just temporarily parking that value and you could flip out of it anytime. And the person that issued the tokens would still benefit from the resale in the secondary market. So I think we're going to see more, more programs for Web3 artifacts that look like that and that are less dependent on crypto market prices which is part of just what we get to see behind the scenes right now in the middle of this bear market, these builders whose products don't depend on that in any way and aren't really that correlated to it. Final question I always love to ask before we wrap is, it's three years from now, how are things different in the world with the metaverse all around of us this time in three years? Any predictions or things that you see happening? I think this idea that the computer screen or the mobile phone screen is the interface with which we interact with the metaverse and metaverse worlds is going to stop being such a thing. I think it's going to become kind of a blended reality that and it's going to have to become more kind of hedonically rich, right? It's going to have to become more sensory in order to attract mass audiences. It's going to have to be photorealistic or it could end up being photorealistic there could be photorealistic versions of it as opposed to these kind of schlocky like cartoon worlds i think people are going to aim at some more realism with some of this my hope is that instead of a single metaverse world that's owned top down command controlled by a single company we're going to see multiple metaverse worlds so like how there's a decentraland and a sandbox and we're going to see open world style standards across them 
So here are the standards for this type of artifact. Here are the standards for this type of artifact that are going to enable the artifacts in those worlds to be portable across worlds, which is going to increase people's motivation to purchase those artifacts because there's no lock-in. They don't lose them if they don't want to play in that world or something happens to that world. So I think what we're going to see is a web of interconnected metaverse worlds and experiences by different projects, different companies. Some of them will be more centralized. Some of them will be more decentralized. I almost see like meta sort of like IOI and Nolan Sorrento, just to refer back to our original conversation. And I just don't want them to win. And I think it's very likely that they won't. In this Web3 world, it's littered with bodies of uh, companies that have tried to succeed in this world. Like look at what Facebook failed at with the Libra Calibra project. The incumbents don't always win in this world, which is part of what makes it so fun and exciting. But they can. They can if they do it right and if they do it intelligently. So that's what I'm excited about. An exciting new world ahead. Amanda, if someone wants to check out you, follow you, check out your companies, where can they find you? Serotonin.co is the mainframe. And then you can find Mojito, mojito mojito.xyz, hellofranklin.co for Franklin. And then um, follow me on Twitter, amanda.eth, at Amanda Cassett, C-A-S-S-A-T-T. And I will link up all those in the show notes. Amanda, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me on. All right, that's it for this episode. want to thank you for listening. If you want to get the links and the show notes, just head on over to our website, frontieroftheMetaverse.com. And if you like this episode, please do share it with anyone you know interested in all things Metaverse. And of course, you can subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Would be very much appreciated. All right, I'll see you in the next episode. 